So church, we are in Colossians 3. We're discussing the ramifications of new life in Christ, of being a man or a woman who knows the Lord and wants to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul's making direct application to the lives of men and women and boys and girls in the homes there in Colossae in the greater region. We've been on these verses a couple of weeks. Let me read them again. Colossians 3, 18 through 21 says this, wives submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We've said, said several times, quoting the Baptist faith and message, it says, God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. And if that is true, and I think it is, we need to think deeply and long and hard about the family, about marriage, about children. And I, there are many people here today who are single, and I just want to say thank you for being part of the body of Christ. Thank you for your diligence. It is an incredibly difficult thing, I believe, to be a single person in this culture. Very difficult. So, so thank you for that. Uh, but the marriage relationship is, is foundational. This is very interesting. You have to understand this. God instituted marriage before sin entered the human race in the age of innocence. Adam and Eve. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. So he gave Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam. That's before sin entered the human race. So this is, at the, this is at the very heart of the purposes of God for our flourishing. Once again, God is eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is gloriously good. God has communicated to us in the Scripture, and God desires our flourishing, our joy, our purpose, our fulfillment in the things of God. Now, marriage is, is uh, an interesting. Love is an interesting thing. This is a humorous survey done 10 years ago with children. I'm going to just read the questions and give you some of their answers, just four or five questions. Question one, how do people in love typically behave? Wendy, age eight. Well, when a person gets kissed for the first time, they fall down and they don't get up for at least an hour. Next question, why? Why does love happen between certain people? Andrew says, he's age six. Well, one of the people has freckles, so he finds someone else who has freckles too. Mary, age nine. No one is really sure how it happens, but I've heard it has something to do with how you smell, and that's why perfume and deodorant are so important. <laughs> what do you think falling in love is like? John, age nine. It's, it's like an avalanche, and you ought to run for your life. Glenn, age nine, says, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it because it takes too long. <laughs> On the role of looks in marriage, Anita says, if you want to be loved by somebody who isn't already in your family, it doesn't hurt to be beautiful. Brian, age seven, says, it isn't just how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome. Handsome like anything. And I haven't gotten anybody to marry me yet. 
And then there are some confidential sources of general opinions about love. David A.J. says, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five years old, and the girls keep finding me. Regina H. 10 says, I'm not rushing into being in love. The fourth grade is plenty hard enough for me. What, what keeps you in love? Dell A. 6 says, tell, tell her you own a whole bunch of candy stores. Camille said this, <laughs> shake your hips and hope for the best. How to Make Love Endure, Dick, age eight, says, spend most of your time loving instead of going to work. Aaron, age eight, says, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess your love up. Dave, age eight, said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget you never take out the garbage. So, interesting comments about love and marriage. I want to go from the humorous to the very discouraging. Understand this. We live in a tidal wave, a tsunami, when it comes to the rearrangement, redefinition of marriage and family and gender. It is unbelievable. So I'm going to show you some stats just very quickly. For example, cohabitation. In the year 1975, 16% of the people who eventually got married lived together before marriage. 1992, 56%. Today, or four years ago, five years ago, 77%. Wow. Now, uh, some of us have uh, remembered this. In 1977, there was a man who had just been inaugurated as president. His name was Jimmy Carter. And one of his first addresses, he looked at federal workers and he said, I'm going to ask you to quit shacking up and to get married. And they laughed at him like he's a fossil from the past. That was 77. Today it's just prevalent. You watch any show on TV today, any movie, people get to know each other, they start dating, they like each other, and then the next huge event is maybe we should live together. And I'm just saying that's not a biblical option. And, and there are many people here who have been raised in that culture, and, 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 and quite frankly, if you're living together, just, just, just stop, stop. Tell us we'll put you in a home until you're ready to be married or, or go ahead and get married. I, but, but this is not God's desire. Hebrews 13 says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God opposes people who don't live that way. I don't, be, I don't want to be in opposition to the living God. Tsunamis. This is a, a full screen. It's going to be in the worship center, a full screen. But just a couple. This, this is a percentage of births to unmarried women. Just a couple. United Kingdom. In 1980, 12%. Today, it is 44%. And this is with almost unrestricted abortion. It's, it's amazing. Uh, you're going down the United States, we were at 18, now we're at 40. Germany was at 12, now they're at 30. Look at Catholic Spain and Italy, were, they were at 4%, now they're at 28 and 21, and they're rising. I mean, this is, this is a tsunami. Very quickly today in our culture, by ethnicity, out of wedlock births among the African-American culture, we're now at 72%, all births out of wedlock. Hispanics at 53%. The white culture, Anglos at 28%, from, from 5% just a few years ago. Now, 
Once again, we have single parents in this church, and they are brave, and they're resilient, and I, I admire them. But, but let me just say this. Every demographic study done by people on the right or the left or the center or up or they're down, every demographic study, every, 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 everyone says that two parent families produce kids that have a higher education, a lower incidence of incarceration, and higher economic viability. Uh, and you know why? Because that's God's pattern. That's God's pattern. And they, they give that statement and they say, well, we can't, we can't really say. No, no, let's say very clearly, that is the pattern of God. So, so when I look at this passage and I, and I say, you know, I, I, wanna, I want to be a, a, a father who, who instructs my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I want to love my wife and not be harsh with her. Or my wife says, I want to respect my husband. I, I feel like they, they, that you're fighting for the things of God. See, the, the, the good news is this, that if you are married and you're a believer or you have children and you're a believer and you love each other and you laugh and you forgive each other and you walk with each other and you confess your sins and, and, and you love your kids and you're not harsh with them and, and, and there's a sense of well-being, you open your home to your neighbors, you have hospitality and you invite them in and they see the gospel of Jesus. And so you're able to preach Christ by just loving people, by just doing what God calls us to do. And so I feel like when I do that, I am fighting for the things of God. And I just thought of this about 10 minutes ago. I, I really wanted to memorize this, but I have not. Th this is the Lord of the Rings. So last group didn't get it. This one hit some of you. Some of you haven't seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You really should. You really should. It should be part of your discipleship. But in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Aragorn, who, who is a man, is challenging the troops to go into battle. And it doesn't look good. In fact, it looks really bad. And so he's in front of the troops, and this is what he says. Hold your ground, hold your ground, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight by all that we hold dear on this good earth. I bid you stand, men of the West. Now, I already believe Tolkien read Joshua 24. Where Joshua said, listen, he said, you want to worship the false gods and the half gods across the river? The gods that are not gods? Go for it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And listen, when we stand up and do God's work and God's way and we love our wives and we love our, care for our husbands and we love our kids and we, 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 we breathe Jesus into their lives, we are taking a stand with the men of the West or the people of God. So fight. Fight on. In a tumbleweed culture, I just say, fight on. And as we do, listen to Philippians 2, verse 13. God works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So God's at work. And this, he says, as you realize that, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life, so that 
when Christ comes, I may be proud. Shine. Shine. God is working. Don't grumble, complain, but trust and let your light shine. See, that's why I want you to hear this. When you read the scripture and it talks about the home and it talks about husbands love your wives and wives respect your husband and children obey your parents and, and the Lord for this is right. And you, you root it in the new birth that's given you in Jesus by the cross that we just observed in the Lord's Supper. It's rooted in the greatness of Christ. That's why scripture insists that we're continuously arrested by the glory and goodness of the gospel. Are you nurtured by the gospel? Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says that, verse 20, he says, this is not the way you learn Christ. He says, the non-believers walk in sensuality and there's no rootedness in their lives. They just go from pillar to post as the winds blow. He says, but this is not how you learn Christ. And he says later, verse 29, let no corrupting or unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their need. Watch your speech. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of the living God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And, and listen, and be kind to one another and tenderhearted and, and forgiving each other just as you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. How do you exercise forgiveness and tenderness? You, you glory in the cross. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he grounds it in the reality and the glory and the goodness of Christ. Now, and I just ask myself, Am I continuously arrested by the wonder of the grace of Christ? It brings, see, the gospel brings equilibrium. The gospel brings thankfulness and joy. The gospel brings a teachable spirit. Therefore, I desperately need the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit every day. You, 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 read, you read these things. Husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I, my, really, sometimes I say, you've got to be kidding me. I look at my heart, you've you got to be kidding. Wives, respect your husband. <laughs> when you've been married... 15 and 20 and 30 and 35 and 40 years? Are you serious? I've got to continuously run to the gospel of grace. John, John Newton, slave trader who lived a horrific life of sexual abuse in so many ways that we really can't talk about unless you're in a very R-rated group. Horrible. Slave trader abuser of slaves, was saved by the grace of Christ, became a preacher, and just as an, uh, the biographer of John Newton say he was not a good preacher. He, he was orthodox, but he just wasn't a good preacher. But he wrote 
weighty letters about theological issues. There, there are five volumes of John Newton's letters, and they're a treasure chest. But John Newton said this. Now think about this. If the Lord were to leave me one hour, I should fall into gross evil. I am like a child who dares not go across a bustling street in London unless someone holds my hand. I just want to say that I agree with John Newton. That I need sustaining grace daily. And especially when I read these, I read these things, I'm going, wow. So, so um, of course, he wrote a hymn, amazing, the most famous hymn in Christendom, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the next stanza says, through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. Uh, Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will see me home. See, sustaining grace. Another stanza. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Sustaining grace. He says, grace will bring me home. Grace save me. Grace will bring me home. I mean, I've got to tell you, I was working on this sermon this week, and uh, think about how I need a sustaining grace. And then in a six-hour, seven-hour period, I was peevish and... Uh, Harsh with a, with a very dear friend. And I had to go back and ask him to forgive me the next two days later. And then about five hours later, I was impatient and unkind and, un and not understanding to my wife of almost 38 years. That's in six hours. And that was a good day. We should be able to say, I cannot explain the Christian life apart from sustaining grace. I, I believe that. So, so we need the glory in Christ, church. So I'm going to give you a little paradigm, a little continuum now about the married life, parenting. So, so one extreme is the push to perfectionism, and the other extreme is you settle for less than what God has. They're, they're polar opposites. So we live in an age of uh, the push towards a type of perfectionism. I just finished reading a book by a guy named Will Storr, who's a British sociologist. It's a very good book. He's not a believer. It's entitled uh, Selfies, one word. And this is just one of his statements. He says that, Classical scholar Dr. Michael Squire of King's College London told me, quote, the ancient Greeks had this idea that being physically beautiful was the same as being ethically good. And likewise, being physically ugly was the same as being ethically bad. Close quote. In fact, they had a word for it. It's uh, kologathia. Kolog uh, kologs means beauty and agathos means good. So Beauty and good behavior go together. In other words, this idea that the, that the bodily form is inherently important for understanding who someone is is very much still with us today, and it pushes us to perfectionism or desire for it. So that, that's one of the thesis statements of the book. And then it gives this study. This is amazing to me. You go, wow. 
Let me just say this. You're never going to be perfect. You're going to be a sinner to the day you die. More about that later. But So in 2018, he says, a new study has just been released. So there's a study by psychologists analyzed data from over 40,000 university students across the U.S., the United Kingdom, and Canada, and found levels of perfectionism from 1989 to 2016 on the rise. Now listen to this. The extent to which these students felt they had to, quote, display perfection to secure approval, close quote, had grown by 33%. 33% from 86 to 2016. 33%. That's a land shift. And I look at that and, I'm, and he goes on and says, there's no wonder there's a growth in suicides and depression among young people because they perceive they've got to, uh, to, to, to be perfect. You're not going to get there. That's why we have the cross, the glory of the cross. So, so two polar opposites. One is the, the push to perfectionism. Let me admit that I have enjoyed watching. Uh, by the way, some things are better today than 1989. I'm not longing for the old days. This, this is what was around in 1989, the mullet. So, so we're better than 1989. That's so bad. Okay, just inside. So I enjoy, I have enjoyed Jane Austen movies with my, my wife. Usually the BBC production that is longer and gets more into the book instead of the short. For example, we've watched uh, Emma. It's a, great, it's a great show. It's a great book. Uh, the, the hero in the book is a guy named Mr. Knightley, the guy in the back, who you also know as Sherlock. And, and, and Mr. Knightley swoops in and saves the day. And, and Mr. Knightley is uh, chivalrous. He's self-controlled. He is a servant. He's classy. He's been a cotillion. Um, he's, he's, he's good-looking. And he's perfect. And he's wealthy. All of Jane Austen's heroes are wealthier than Bill Gates. They live in, they live in these castles that, 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 are, that, that are bigger than the Charleston Airport. This is huge. So that's Mr. Knightley. And then, and then this is the one exception of not BBC. I just really like Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley. And you've got, that's Mr. Darcy in the background. Once again, have you, have you seen it? Mr. Nart Darcy is, he's good looking. He's gracious. He's kind. He's been a cotillion. He's self-effacing. Um, and he's wealthy. I mean, and he swoops in and saves the day. And it's it's, it's wonderful. Um, this is my favorite one, Sense and Sensibility. This is Colonel Brandon, who once again is a man among men. He, he's gracious. He's manly. He's mannerly. He's proper. And he's wealthy. And these, these are the guys. I, and then a few years ago, I decided I'm going to get to know George Washington via biography and historical accounts. So I spent about six months reading several biographies of George Washington and the Revolutionary War. And I came away thinking, George Washington was incredible. I couldn't find anything about him that was going, yeah. I mean, really? I mean, he was 6'3", six, 6'4", six, when most people were 5'7". He was, uh, he always 
bemoan the fact that he didn't have a great education, but when you read his letters, the guy was self-educated in a remarkable degree. He held together a ragtag army in the Revolutionary War when they were fighting the most powerful army on the face of the earth. He made good decisions, generally speaking. He had trusted friends. When people rose up against him, he was always gracious toward them, and he let other people take care of him. I mean, he, was, he, was, he, was, he had to be literally pulled into the political arena. Um, and he was a man. I mean, their story real quickly. During the war, the, a group from New Jersey, I think it was, and, and Georgia were in the field, and they were doing a game. They had this fight, as people from Georgia and New Jersey do. And the story is that George Washington walked in among them, and he got the two ringleaders up, and he grabbed them by the neck, and he shook them. And he said, I will not let you divide this army like this. And some people said he lifted them up. I don't think that's possible. But he, he shook them, and he walked off, and they fled the field. They ran away. Another time they were playing a game, and they were, you know, the, the Highland Games, they take a big pole and you throw it, so you can throw the feathers. And they were all these young guys were out there, and George Washington was walking by, and he stopped, and he picked it up, and he threw it further than anybody else, and just kept on walking. I mean, so he was a man's man. So look at these guys. They're wealthy. They're self-composed. They've been to Cotillion. They do the right thing, they say the right thing, and look at me, and I don't do any of those things. And, and it's easy to sometimes, I think, just become very discouraged. And, 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 and don't go there. Don't go to perfectionism. Don't, don't camp out in Jane Austen novels. On the other hand, don't settle for less. See, there, this, is, this is where there's balance here. When I mean settle for less, is you, just, you just give up and expect too little. There's a guy named Martin Luther. He had a famous phrase called simul ustus et peccator. Simultaneously righteous and sinful. That's us, if you know Christ. You're simultaneously a child of God. The Holy Spirit is working in your life. You receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, and you're also a sinner. So, so in, in that context, we need to say, Lord, by your grace, build me into the man or woman you've called me to be. Do not let me settle for less than what you want with my sinfulness, where I have to run the cross every day. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says this. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of your time because the days are evil. We'll stop. If he's talking to the church and he says, live as wise, not as unwise, then by way of exegetical analysis, you can be unwise as a child of God. You can turn your ear to the Scripture and not understand the will of the Lord. You can be someone who does not make the best use of your days. Verse 18, and be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, do not settle. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that our homes could, our homes could have a peaceful coexistence of nothingness. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I could be a father who berates and browbeats my children. So I, I say to you, press into the kingdom, brothers and sisters, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships. Press, press into the kingdom. Don't settle for a life that doesn't truly honor the Lord and brings joy to your heart. You're saved for a purpose. 
Some of you know the name Thomas Carlyle, who's a famous writer from England. He married a woman named Mary, and they both were writers, and they were friends of a guy named Edward Irving. This is a, Edward Irving was a, a preacher of the gospel, but as Edward Irving grew into older years, he more and more left the Bible behind, became very experiential, and there's a great study we could do on Edward Irving someday where, where he really basically denied the gospel. But he was their friend, and his friendship didn't really bless them very much. Thomas and Mary Carlyle were married for many, many, many years, I think 50 years, and, and they fought for 50 years. In fact, there is a, they found the letters of Thomas and Mary Carlyle and over a thousand, and the letters are all about, you did this and you didn't do that, and I don't like you, and I don't like you, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, that type of stuff. Imagine, that's, that's hell. A wit named Samuel Butler said, it is very good of God to let Carlyle and Mrs. Carlisle marry one another so that only two people were miserable instead of four. Well, some of you like Tolstoy. I like Tolstoy. But Tolstoy, Leo's marriage to Sonia, was a train wreck. I don't want to have a train wreck marriage. I don't want to settle. I don't want to settle for just nothing. So I'm going to give you a self-help test in the next few minutes. We'll see what happens. First to the men. Men. Number one. Do you, one to five, and guys, men and women, take this test uh, and then go out with your spouse. Men, take them to a nice restaurant, give her a surprise gift, and then let her grade you. Number one, one to five. Five being good, one being eh, not very good. I praise, cherish, and I am affectionate with my wife. I, I build her up. I am thankful for her. I touch her. I enjoy her. I have eyes for her. I, I, I seek to have eyes that gaze at her and not other people. I, I don't ever ask or ask or give her a reason to doubt the depth of my affection and love. Number two, men. We're called to be servant leaders. Men should be pace setters in godliness. See, second, First Timothy 4 says this, verse 15, um, be diligent in these matters, Bible reading, thinking well, be diligent in these matters so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. So, so I, I read that and I think, you know, do, do, do my children, if they're home, does my, does my wife see me reading the Bible? Uh, uh, reading good books. If they get in the car and they check my podcast list and, and I listen to things that build me up in the Lord and, and sharpen my mind and my thinking to, to live Christianly. Am I a, a, a pace setter in pursuing Christ? Once again, John Newton <clears throat> wrote a little poem that became a hymn. He says, this is so good. This is so good. Our, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, 
no less than duty's call to love him beyond measure and to serve him with our all. So, so he said duty and pleasure before we saw the beauty of Christ were, were kind of maybe like this, but in Christ, duty and pleasure are joined. And in this book, the writer of this wonderful book on John Newton, he says, quoting this hymn, Timothy Keller, a modern-day preacher, followed it with a question, which is this, what is it that has taken the whipsaw out of John Newton's life from between pleasure and duty and brought them together? He says, here's the answer. A beauty, in other words, the gospel, doesn't primarily give you a duty. It gives you a beauty that makes duty possible. And then this writer of this book says this, in other words, long-term Christian obedience will fail if not fueled by the glorious beauty of Christ in the gospel. Boy, I love that. Long-term Christian obedience will fail if not fueled by the glorious beauty of Christ in the gospel. I, I want to see the beauty of Christ. Really, I want to see the beauty of Christ. That brings joy and happiness. Uh, a guy I like very much, a guy named Russell Moore. I listened to him the other day. I like Russell. He's a friend. And he's talking about he's getting older. He's much younger than me, but he's getting older. He says, the older I get, the more I realize the little hymn I learned at a Sunday school in Mississippi. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said, as I think about that, he said, so much of my life I've spent thinking about, for the Bible tells me so, which is important to be biblical. But I've got to first camp out in this. Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me with an everlasting love. Jesus loves me as my Savior and my King. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I would just say, brothers and sisters, are we beholding the, the beauty of Christ? As you behold the gospel and the beauty of Christ, I think it changes you. It changes you. It, it changes you. Thirdly, men, are we protecting our families from the tumbleweed culture in which we live? Uh, see, what's up this year is down tomorrow. What's up, I mean, it's, it's always changing. And, and, and we're to guard our homes. Just a couple of statements. I was at a conference recently with a guy named Tony Reike, who has, is a media expert about the impact on culture and very, very, very bright. In fact, he, he, he wrote the book on John Newton that I'm reading, which is amazing. He writes about, about modern-day technology and John Newton. People like that really make me nauseated, that gifted. But Tony Reike said this, and I am not a technologically savvy guy. He said, he has four kids, two of them are teenagers, and he said, we have a Wi-Fi that I have to turn on. I turn it off. And our kids cannot use the Wi-Fi unless they come to me and tell me why they want to use it. And he said, I plead with you, he was talking to a group of pastors, I plead with you to tell your people, do not give your children unrestricted access to the Internet. You've got to guard them. And he said this, and he gave us 12 keys. And he says, when, when you are having a meal or traveling, it's an Internet-free time. You talk. He says, don't, don't, don't be. I was, I, was in, I was in Walmart yesterday, and there's a little girl there. I mean, she's fifth grade. 
and her dad's checking out, and she's standing there waiting on him, reading, reading her, her, uh, her, her pad. I'm going, are you serious? Now, I say car rides. If you drop them here to Chicago, I think it's okay to have a couple of Wi-Fi moments, but just around town. So I just say, dads, are you protecting your family, your marriages? You don't, you don't let things into your, your heart or your home that are detrimental. The psalmist says, I've, I've made a vow in my heart to put no detrimental thing before my eyes. Fourthly, are, are we pleading for our families, dads? Are we pleading for their welfare, servant leaders? Are we, are we praying for them? I, I, I pray, Sarah and I pray every day for the, child, for the people that our grandchildren will marry. And our grandkids are two and a half, 11 and nine months. So we've got a little way to go probably. But we're praying for them. That's just what we do. Because I need sustaining grace. They need sustaining grace. I told you this, I'm not bragging, it's just something I did, but <clears throat> there, when, I, when our three grandkids have been born, I assign each of them a psalm that I pray over when I think about them. Psalm 16, Psalm 84, and Psalm 91 so far. The little guy that lives over here about five miles from here, he's Psalm 16. Preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints of the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. Wow. And, and so if I die today, and I could, that they were going to grow up and in 15 and 20 years, when that little boy hears Psalm 16 read, he's going to smile and say, my granddaddy prayed that over me when I was born. Just do that. And, 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 and there are 150 Psalms, so I think I'm not going to run out of material. You know what I mean? Number five, men. It says here, husbands, or fathers, fathers. See, he says, parents, obey your parents. Then the next verse says, fathers. It's a different, different Greek word. Fathers, uh, do not exasperate your children. Ephesians says, bring them up in the love and instruction of the Lord. And so dads, exasperate means to belittle, to nag, to overcorrect, or to compare. We love our kids. Yeah, yeah, we instruct them. But we don't browbeat them. Every moment is not a teachable moment. We care for them, and we nurture them, and we love them. I had a very dear friend whose son was involved in the gay community at a major city, and it broke his heart. And he would go there, frequently visit him, and he would take him out to eat with some of his friends, and he, he just cared for them. And he said this to his son who, who died years after this, young man. He said, your mom and I are going to love you deeper and stronger and in a more enduring way than the gay community of this city. You can't outrun our love. That is powerful. Wives, very quickly, our time is leading. Wives, first this. Do you Show an attitude that honors and respects your husband. Ephesians 5.33, wives respect your husbands. It means you honor them. I told you, I said last week, if you weren't here, 
I said, if you ask 100 men, had you rather be respected or loved, 99 will say respected. Which means that you believe in them, you pray for them, you, you build them up. Now, there is a movie that is one of the greatest movies ever made. It's Cinderella Man. It's a true story by and large. It's, 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 it's about a guy named James J. Braddock who became the world heavyweight champion in the late 20s, early 30s. Uh, James J. Braddock is portrayed by Russell Crowe, who's, who's the best, and Renee Zellwinger, who's incredible as his wife. But in the movie, it's a true story. James J. Braddock is down his luck. He can barely feed his family. Uh, he can't get a job. It's the depression. And so he goes back into boxing. He has to learn to box because of some injuries. Uh, and he achieves success. And he starts winning boxing bouts. bouts. And, and, and so he's contacted by a German heavyweight champion. His manager says, can we have a fight? And his wife says, no. She says, he may kill you. Now, that's not a very encouraging. Just sit around the dinner table. And your wife says, don't fight him. He may kill you. But uh, James J. Bragg says, I got to fight him. I got to feed my family. Really? I got I to do it. And so she says, I can't support you. I, I can't go there. I, I just can't do it. And so he's training. And, and then on the night of the fight, it shows him sitting in his in the locker room all by himself. And this is probably embellished, but, but he's sitting by himself. I got to sit down to say this because it, it takes my breath away. He's sitting there all by himself, waiting to be pummeled to death. And... His wife shows up. He doesn't expect this. And so she comes in the locker room, and this is what she says. This may be the greatest line in movies. She says to her husband, So you just remember who you are. You're the bulldog of Bergen County in New Jersey. And the pride of New Jersey you're everybody's hope and the kid's hero, and you are the champion of my heart, James J. Braddock. Now think about that. Wow. You're, you're, you're our kid's hero. Now, I, I, I don't have any desire to be the pride of New Jersey. There's nothing in me that wants to be the, 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 the sultan of, of Newark, you know, that type of thing. But you're, you're the hero of your kids, and you are the champion of my heart. That's incredible. Guess what? He won. <laughs> he won. Um, I, I just I say that, church, because it's, it's so important. If you haven't seen that movie, you really should see it. Number two, I understand that, that my husband is the servant leader of the home, and I defer to him in decisions which are not uh, defined in Scripture or detrimental to others. If it's defined in Scripture, I defer to him, or if not detrimental, he's a servant leader. Uh, and so you, you, you say, God has appointed you to lead out in our home, uh, to be a pace setter. Thirdly, I pray for my husband to reach his full stature in Christ 
and I use words to bless him, especially in public. Listen, listen for, for both, all, all of us, do not berate your spouse in public, ever. That's, that's, that's poison. That's just poison. So, so wives, speak well of your husband. Build him up. And last, this, I, I know that graciously yielding to another is fitting in the Lord. You see, I said last week that, that, that all of us are called to submit to one another out of Ephesians 5. Uh, and, and we're called to submit to the government in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in Romans 13, verse 5. And, and we're called to submit to the elders in spiritual matters, Romans 13, verse 17. So, so it is a freeing disposition of yielding in ways that are fitting under the rubric of a God who is good and glorious and kind and who loves us. And I would just, I would say, I would plead with you and plead with myself. Brothers and sisters, do not settle for mediocrity. Honor Christ, keep pressing, keep loving, keep serving, keep cherishing, and, and may your home be a place where Christ is preached with power to the glory of his name. This is also uh, Memorial Day weekend. This is a, a time when we remember the sacrifice of so many men, primarily, who have died to preserve freedom. Uh, we don't take that lightly. And the sacrifice that many children and mothers made who did not welcome a husband and a dad home. And we do not take that lightly. There, there is, an, there is a, not to be critical of any other country, but there is a little statement by my, one of my favorite historians, Stephen Ambrose, who was writing about Europe after the Nazis were defeated in May of 1945. And he said this. He said, when the people of Germany saw the Soviets coming, they fled because they realized in many cases it would lead to rape and, and death and destruction. But when the citizens of Germany saw the American GIs coming, they ran toward them because it represented candy and chewing gum. I just want to read that. I went, what a great heritage we have. We should never take it lightly that people have served with dignity and grace. And we pray, we should pray that our country would take that to the next level as we seek to protect those and to plead for those who cannot protect themselves. So, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we, we first of all ask that you would let us be people who say with Joshua of old, if, if you're going to serve the half gods or the gods that are not, that's up to you. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we pray for the generations to come behind us, that they would know that there is a standard of godliness that flows from the Word of God, that comes from the corridors of the triune God who is good and glorious and who wants our flourishing So have mercy, Lord. Lord, we, we, we thank you for um, 
the sacrifice of so many people who stood up and who served in our armed forces and who gave their lifeblood. We think of the 365 or so thousand really teenagers, basically, who died in World War II to halt the horrendous, ungodly movement of Imperial Japan and the Nazi regime. We think of those who gave their lives in Korea and Vietnam and Desert Storm and the 135,000 of World War I. And, and Lord, we forgive us for taking these things lightly. And when we pray for our country today, we pray, Lord, for those in leadership. We pray you'd give us men and women who understand responsibility and who understand godliness. I, I think of the Psalm, Psalm 54, that says, uh, these men are godly because they do not place God before, these, things, these men are godless because they do not place God before their eyes. I pray you give us leaders who place God before their eyes. Uh, so bless our country. Bless those who presently serve in our armed services. Have mercy upon us in Jesus' name.